Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, for your covenant promises. We thank you for the covenant of grace that has, in Christ, brought us in, brought us near, found us in our sin and death, and brought us forgiveness and life in him. So help us to understand this part of your word more clearly and build our lives upon it. We pray for your work in us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have been, and it's been kind of here and there, but starting in the fall, we started with covenant theology, looking at just the basics of covenant as a definition of what a covenant is. Does anyone remember what a covenant is? What's the basic definition? An agreement between two or more parties, but you can say two, that's fine. Two plus parties. Uh, Yes, that's a great definition for covenant. We talked about the history of covenant theology. We talked about the covenant of redemption. Does anyone remember what the covenant of redemption is? So most of the covenants and all of the covenants we're talking about from here on out happen in history. But the covenant of redemption happens outside of history. Yeah, really. What's the covenant of redemption? It's a covenant made between three persons. Mm-hmm. So it's an inter-Trinitarian or intra, I don't know, whichever, whichever one is accurate, intra-Trinitarian covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, to <clears throat> the Father elects those who will receive uh, grace and salvation. The Son agrees as part of the covenant to, in history, take on flesh and live with obedience and die a substitutionary death and the Spirit applies that redeeming work to the elect. So that's the covenant of redemption. Then we talked about, for a few weeks, about the covenant with Noah. It was a little out of order. I mean, it's in biblical order, but we're kind of backing up now. The covenant with Noah is mostly a common grace covenant that God makes with all creation. says, after the flood, I'm not going to destroy the world by water again. I'm going to give you a stable predictable platform in order for uh, humanity to flourish and for there to be things like justice and marriage and family and commerce and all of that. But more importantly, that stable platform allows the covenant of grace, which we're turning to now, to move forward. So that's where we've been. Where we're going is the covenant of grace. And this is um, uh, kind of a general intro And it's not going to get into everything that the covenant of grace involves because soon we're going to start talking about the covenant with Abraham, which is part of and a very important part of the covenant of grace. But today is kind of an intro to this whole very important covenant. This is is our covenant. We are in the covenant of grace. And so when we have uh, a baptism, that is a... Uh, an initiation into the covenant of grace. When we have the Lord's Supper, it says the words of Jesus, this is the new covenant in my blood. That is the covenant of grace. So let me read this quote <clears throat> from Herman Bovink. You knew, you probably knew there were going to be some Herman Bovink quotes coming, and you were right. Uh, <clears throat> here's what he writes. In the other religions, it is man whom we always see at work, trying by the achievement of knowledge by keeping all kinds of rules or by withdrawal from the world 
into the secrecy of his own inner life to obtain redemption from evil and communion with God. In the Christian religion, the work of men is nothing, and it is God himself who acts, intervenes in history, opens the way of redemption in Christ, and by the power of his grace, brings man into redemption and causes him to walk in it. So that's a great summary of everything we're talking about. Every other religion has something that you have to do, or usually more than one thing that you have to do, in order to be secure, to achieve enlightenment or salvation or forgiveness or whatever. Only the Christian faith, only the faith taught in the scriptures shows God coming to save humanity himself, to do everything. And so all that we do is have faith. That's the only requirement, is to believe. So we'll expand on that. But let me define the covenant of grace by, very helpfully, this is one of those covenants that shows up in our confession of faith, uh, which if you have a Psalter hymnal, you can find in the back of your Psalter hymnal. This is Westminster Confession of Faith 7.3. This is the covenant wherein, so you've got these technical terms, wherein God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them, what does he require? Faith in him. That's it. That they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Do you see the Trinity in that, uh, that just long sentence? God offers sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. So God the Father offers life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, and on and on, and promises to give his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So faith is the requirement. Faith is the condition of entry into the covenant of grace. And what does God do? He gives the Holy Spirit so that we're willing and able to believe. God gives the faith that is needed to be welcomed into the covenant of grace. It's a great summary. So keep that in mind. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, so we have been in Genesis like 8 and 9 with Noah. Now we're backing up to the Proto-Evangelium. That's the very nerdy theological term. First gospel. If you want the normal translation, this is the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, and I'll back up and read verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise in seed form. Think of like an acorn that will grow into an oak tree. That is the first promise of the gospel from God in his cursing of the serpent and Yet, in the hearing of the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, giving a promise of the gospel that her offspring will um, have his heel bruised by the serpent, but he will bruise the serpent's head. So think about Romans, the end of Romans, there's that verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. That's drawing back on this and saying, in Christ, 
the, the serpent's head is crushed. The curse is broken. You are, um, you are no longer in bondage to sin and death. You're in Christ. So Genesis 3.15 is a very important verse uh, for that first gospel. So the covenant of grace is related to the other covenants we've talked about. We've already talked about its relationship to the covenant with Noah. Common grace allows the covenant of grace to move forward in redemptive history. But it's also related to the covenant of works. Remember, those are the two main covenants that are spoken about in the Westminster Confession. There's the covenant of works, which is with Adam uh, as the representative of all humanity. What's the requirement of the covenant of works? Do you remember? You don't have to remember the exact terminology, but do you remember what is required of Adam and the covenant of works? So that's the moment of probation where this is the test, right? This is the test that Adam must pass in order to fulfill the covenant of works. But it's representative of a bigger requirement. You remember the Westminster Confession terminology for it? It is a couple P words. Perfect personal obedience. Obedience doesn't start with P, but you get it. Perfect personal obedience. You have to, in the covenant of works, you must obey God perfectly. One slip up, one failure, one sin is enough to end the whole thing. It's the deal is broken. You can no longer find life by that way. And we all know the covenant, with, the covenant of works with Adam was broken. Adam and Eve sinned. So the covenant of works is related to the covenant of grace because Jesus is the final Adam. He is the second Adam and the last Adam. He, for him, the covenant of grace comes about by him fulfilling the covenant of works. But believers are saved by faith apart from works. So it's very important to be clear on this. If you are in the covenant of grace, it is not in any way by your works. You can't get more in by better works or less in by worse works. You can't be in or out for anything because Jesus is the one who has done the works. So that's the relationship to the covenant of works. It's also related in a similar way to the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption happening in history. It was planned and agreed upon in eternity past, but the covenant of grace is when the covenant of redemption happens. The son fulfills what God gave him to do and is given a people, the elect people of God by the Father. And those people are brought into the covenant of grace by the Holy Spirit uh, who makes them, as we've said, willing and able to believe. So I hope you see how this is all coming together. And uh, this is why there are churches, the one of the churches in our presbytery is called Covenant of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's a great name for a church. There are lots of covenant Presbyterian churches, but it's good to be more specific sometimes. That's a totally fine name, but you never hear a covenant of works Presbyterian church, and if you do, you should not go there. But covenant of grace is really, really central to our whole identity as the people of God. So let me pause and see if there are any questions that you all might have. Yeah, Bob?
man. It's preached to Satan. Mm -hmm. explained to Satan. And man is oblivious of this, evidently, until Genesis is written sometime after, after with Moses at that point in time, uh, by some scribe under Moses or Moses himself, some believe. But so man is calling on the name of the Lord, as it says in another passage in early Genesis, mm -hmm. and being saved, and he doesn't he doesn't really know how the mechanism of this. He doesn't really understand that it's through God's um, redeeming grace that's free and it's based on the death of Christ that is cryptically explained in Genesis 3.15. Yeah, I think there, yeah, there is development, definitely. And the seed or acorn sprouts. I think, I think that the curse on the serpent is within the hearing of Adam and Eve. If you look at Genesis 3, verse 20, it says there, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then later on, when uh, they have their first children, um, there are some language parallels in chapter 4, verse 1. Eve bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I think that there is a, it's, we don't know everything about that, but I think there is a sense that they do, they have heard that promise and they do believe that promise. So I would just modify it a little bit, but I think you're right. There's definitely development as, as time goes by well, in understanding. Yeah, I don't think they understand the full picture, but I think they understand enough, and we'll get we'll actually get to that. So uh, you're... obviously, uh, God is able to uh, to save people with through the Word of God with with little knowledge of the of the person that is being saved. Yeah, I think that's true, but we'll come back to it because we're getting to stuff that's related to that. Any other questions or comments? All right, so to go with our confession of faith, here's the point. There is one covenant of grace throughout all of scripture from Genesis 3.15 on through Revelation 22. One covenant of grace. But there are two main administrations of the covenant of grace. And I put two main, uh, the confession says two, there are, there are other things going on in there. There are two main ones. There is the time of the law and the time of the gospel. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Both of those are administrations of the covenant of grace, but things are different. Uh, so the, the covenant of grace I put here is the same in substance and its essence from Genesis 3.15 on in scripture, but it's administered differently. So think about... When you think about administration, think about like 
when you have a new president, there is a new presidential administration. And things are different. Uh, some things, you know, coming up to an election year, uh, probably some of you are hoping for some sort of change, right? We're not, not going to get political. Talked about that last week. But there is a change when there's a new president who comes into office and things are done differently. But the, the essence is the same. It's still a presidential administration, still, at least theoretically, governed by the Constitution and our, our agreed-upon system of government, but the administration changes. That's what we're talking about when we use that term for the covenant of grace. Different administrations, but one covenant of grace. Um, so here is the main promise of the covenant of grace. And you see this all through scripture. I gave you multiple references. You can look those up. It's this promise from God. I will be your God. And as part of that, that's the main promise. I will be your God. But involved in that is what often comes after that is you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is coming to sinful people who do not by their own works have any reason to expect that they should be received by God as his people and that God should be their God in covenant relationship with them. It's only in the covenant of grace that that can come about. So that comes to Abraham. It's spoken through Moses. Jeremiah, will come. these are all things foreshadowing what's coming in the coming weeks. Jeremiah 31, 33 is the promise of the new covenant where that same promise is echoed, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, it's in Revelation at the very end God will be, be with them as their God, and they shall be his people. But let me read Hebrews. Hebrews is always good for covenant theology. But Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. This is talking about Jesus as the high priest of the new covenant. So starting in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, and he's, again, quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So there is the promise of the new covenant. Again, central to that is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, we will come in future weeks to what is being spoken of as the old covenant there, because... That is very important. Uh, Reformed Baptists have one understanding of what's being spoken of. In our tradition as Presbyterians and capital R Reformed, we have another that I think is more biblical understanding, but we're not talking about that today. 
Uh, we will come to What's more about that in the future. What's that? Let's cut to the chase. <laughs> we'll cut to the chase in a couple weeks. But this is the, just, I just want you to see this is the central promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. But it's administered in different ways. So under the law, and this is using confession of faith language, that is before Christ, here's what it says. In confession of faith 7.5, the covenant of grace was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, that is the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. There's a lot there. There's a lot we could talk about. But what it's saying is everything in the Old Testament, everything in that old covenant administration, whether it is actual promises, we heard a promise in Genesis 3.15, or prophecies, which are usually expanded promises, or sacrifices, or circumcision, the sign of the covenant, or the paschal lamb, the, the substitutionary death of a lamb in the place of the people and for their sins, any other type and ordinance that was delivered to God's old covenant people, all of that, for signify, there's a big word, just looked forward to and pointed to Christ to come. And those things were, even though those Old Testament believers lived before Christ, before Christ came into history and died on the cross and rose again, even though they lived, in some cases, centuries before that, those types and shadows were sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. And so because of that, they had a full remission of sins and eternal salvation in Christ. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all Jacob's sons, David, let's back up, Moses, David, uh, all the, at least the faithful kings, I think there are some kings of Israel and Judah who are not, uh, but all the faithful people of God who knew what they knew in that seed form, maybe sprouting a little bit, they didn't know everything that was to come. They knew there was a promised Messiah, but they didn't know every detail about him or what that would look like. That's why the people of God, when Jesus arrives, are so surprised at what this fulfillment actually looks like, and some of them don't believe. But those who look forward in faith in the Old Testament are Christians. That's a pretty good way to put it. I think that's a, maybe a jarring way to put it. They are believers in Jesus Christ, even though... They are believing the revelation that they had at that time. And so they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by any other way. Uh, just as we are, they are saved the same work of God uh, in Christ. So that's, uh, that's really important to get because, you know, there are lots of different systems out there for understanding how the Bible fits together. And this is one of them that is, is different, probably pretty different from the main Southern California Christian understanding of how the Bible fits together. But you can see, yeah, Nicole? I kind of have a question. I don't know how to frame it, but with these people who um, have the full remission of sin and eternal salvation, is that, anything, is that related to, or 
part of Abraham's bosom, like where, I mean, when they're, when they're died, they went straight to heaven? Is there a holding place? Is that where that all connects? Yeah, I think, no, I think that's, they are, there's differences for those who die before Christ. The salvation is the same in its substance, in its essence. And they, so Hebrews 11 says uh, that they all waited for the promises, but they're not going to be made perfect apart from us. We're going to be all together in that final time. So they are waiting, even now for the promises to be fulfilled. They are, uh, they are in the presence of God, in Christ, uh, but there's, there is something yet to come because Jesus is going to return and all the people of God will together um, enter into that final glorification. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, yeah. there's a the dispensational thing, dispensationalism, not mm-hmm. dispensation, Mm-hmm. A new a new way to look at the old covenant is the new covenant, full of expanded knowledge is the new covenant. Mm-hmm. So we understand it's one covenant. That new covenant means old covenant and new covenant. And it's hard for people to get that. One other thing is we have in, in Hebrews eleven, the writer talks about all of the Old Testament saints like Abraham, Rahab. And Joshua, all of these people are there waiting for us, the church. Mm-hmm. So it's one church. They're part of the New Testament. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church will be the same eternity. Yes. So one church, one covenant. There is one covenant of grace and there is one people of God. Yeah, but then John, in his revelation towards the end of the book of Revelations, mm-hmm. he kind of, it, it kind of uh, confuses looks at the book of Revelation, they, they say, you see, we have these New Testament saints in the in the New Jerusalem, and the Old Testament saints are somewhere else on the earth, and it's two places. Uh, and that's the way they read it. And so it's very, um, I, I, it's confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. I think I think John himself, as an inspired author, is clear, but there, yeah, definitely, there's contested understandings of Revelation that lead to confusion. It's very easy to, 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 head, to get headed down the wrong track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah. Uh, so, there's one covenant of grace, one people of God. There's not two ways of salvation. It's all in Christ. Just a couple of things to look at to, to show that. The Old Testament reaching into the New Testament. So, the old is in the new revealed, the new, uh, no. The old is in the new, the new is in the old concealed. That's right. The old is in the new revealed. There we go. St. Augustine. Very confusing. Every time I try to say that, I get it wrong. But that's the right way to say it. Here are some examples of that. 
So John 8, 56, Jesus says, making the uh, people listening to him very mad because of what he goes on to say, but he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Okay, so Abraham was looking forward down through the passages of time into history and saw some vision of the day of Jesus Christ and was glad. So there is an Old Testament saint who looked with gladness to Jesus. Don't know exactly what that looks like, but that's what Jesus says. And then he goes on to say, before Abraham was, I am, which makes them super mad because he's claiming to be God. But we want to focus on that one, uh, one short phrase from Jesus. Later in John, John 12, 41, Jesus again says, Isaiah saw uh, my glory and spoke about me. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. <clears throat> a lot of people wonder where this happened. There are lots of places that can, you can point to in the book of Isaiah. You could look at Isaiah 53. You can look at um, really all the servant songs, all the songs of the anointed one in Isaiah. A lot of people think in Isaiah 6, you know Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has the vision of God and his glory filling the temple. A lot of people think that is where primarily, and everything else flows from that, of course, where Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read there, verses 1 through 4. So Paul says there, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that is, our, our Jewish forefathers, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So think of if you think back to the wandering in the wilderness, and you remember Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out for the people of God. Well, Paul is saying, who is the rock? And that, is, that rock is Christ. It's no one else. It's salvation, even in that little provision in the wilderness, is in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.8 says there, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Uh, where, can you think of the promise? What's the promise to Abraham that has the gospel seed in it. Do you know? I'm asking you to do things that we will talk about in a couple weeks, but does anyone know? With Abraham? Yeah, with Abraham. What's the, what's the gospel promise that is at least recorded of God promising the gospel to Abraham beforehand? Is that where he split the animals and God mm -hmm. came down to support as a... Yeah. Planning, and he said to Abraham that if I don't fulfill these promises, let the curse be upon me. Mm -hmm. That's a great scene. And that's like at the heart of that whole passage with Abraham. And the promise which comes a little bit either before or after. I have to refresh my memory. But that's, that's like the, that's the moment where God says, if I don't do this, so it's, so if you think covenant of grace, that's it. 
Abraham's asleep, right? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't walk through the sliced up animals. God uh, is the one who takes the oath. Um, but the promise is that um, I will make of you a great nation and in your, in your family, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So just like Genesis 3.15 is that seed form, I'll crush the serpent's head. It gets more specific in Abraham. In your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And who is, if you read Galatians, you can't come away with it with any other answer to this question, but that Jesus is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. And then Hebrews 11, Bob already brought that up. The Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11 are just waiting. They see the promise from a distance, but they don't see the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, and they... There is that longing for fulfillment. So go read Hebrews 11 if you have time this afternoon. It's always good to read. But um, that is the covenant of grace under the law and before Christ. And then we come to, thankfully, the covenant of grace under the gospel and in Christ. So this is, aren't you, you hopefully, one thing I want you to do is come away from this super glad we can give thanks for Old Testament believers who looked in faith forward, but I would much rather be where we are, where we see the fulfillment. Um, and so here's what it says in Confession of Faith 7, 6. When Christ, the substance, he is the substance of the covenant of grace, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. So if you, you should memorize scripture, but if you get that all memorized, memorize this. This is a great Summary of the covenant of grace. Look at what it says. In our day, the ordinances, preaching, sacraments, they are fewer in number than the people of God had in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Think about the feasts, think about all of the uh, ceremonies, all the different offerings and sacrifices that there were. We have two, well, let's say two mainly, the word and the sacraments. There are two sacraments, only two. So we have them in fewer number. It's much more simplicity. There, that's why if you go to Presbyterian churches, and I know we're renting a Messianic synagogue, but I think that fits. Churches are not supposed to be ornate, and they're, they're not supposed to draw your attention to outward glory. And so these... Uh, ordinances of the covenant of grace are administered with more simplicity and less outward glory. There is not, smoke doesn't fill the room. The glory of God does, does not fill the room when we have the Lord's Supper. That would, be, that would be something, but it doesn't happen. And that's, we can, we don't want to make fun of other churches, but other churches sometimes use smoke machines and lights and really amazing production values but that is no substitute for the actual 
glory that there is, which is not outward glory. And so when you, when you focus on those things, you're trying to bring in outward glory into things that should be simple and straightforward because they are ordained by God. So even though there's all these things that seem like uh, drawbacks, fewer in number, more simplicity, less outward glory, here's what it says. Yet in them, it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. There's less of outward stuff and more of the substance. There's, you should be so glad that you live today and not in the old covenant era. Um, so give thanks to God for that. Um, a, great, a great way to see this in Hebrews and is, is in Hebrews 12. Uh, you have not come to the... I should read it. Before I, before I quote it badly, let me actually read it. So Hebrews 12, I'm going to back up. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the, so- the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So there is outward glory, right? There is smoke and lightning and uh, the sound of a trumpet. But here's what the author to Hebrews says. You haven't come there, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So that's where you have come. When we come to worship, in a sense, and it's not weird or mystical or anything like that, but when you come to worship on the Lord's Day, you are coming to Mount Zion. And you are coming, you are being brought from earthly things to the heavenly places where Christ is seated. So that's less outward glory because it looks pretty normal, right? It's singing in a not highly decorated place. It's hearing the word by some guy who sometimes has coughing jags and has to keep water and Werther's Werther's candy up with him so his throat doesn't get too dry. But even in that, there is less outward glory but more efficacy uh, to these these, uh, ordained means for us to draw near to God. So here's a, again, Herman Bavink. <clears throat> he says, comparing the uh, previous administration of the covenant of grace to the current administration of the covenant of grace, he says, the light by which the believer travels differs. The light by which the believers travel differs, but their root is always the same. That's a really good way to think about it. The Old Testament saints had less light but they traveled by the same route and the route is Jesus Christ. We have the bright shining uh, sun at midday, but we also travel by the same route and that route is Christ. So what difference does this make? Hopefully, hopefully you see that this makes a big difference uh, and hopefully you are excited about the difference it makes, but let me make it very concrete. If you are in Christ, you are no longer under the covenant of works. So the covenant of works is summarized and do this and live. That's no longer your standing. You are, it's not any longer a question of if you'll get to the end of your life and have done enough. 
because you haven't and you wouldn't. You're not in the covenant of works, but you're in the covenant of grace. So Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, not for those who have done enough good, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I think it's always good for OPC pastors and churches to tell people to relax and rejoice because we don't have a great reputation sometimes for relaxing. But if you are in Christ, you really can relax. You don't have to worry about your standing with God. It is absolutely sure. And because you can relax, you can also rejoice. Also, because of the covenant of grace, your best days are always ahead of you and are never behind you. Jesus has secured for us the heavenly glory held out to Adam in the covenant of works. So this makes a big difference in day-to-day life. You can have times of life when you are very disappointed with your current circumstances and think, if only I could go back to those days when things were easier or nicer or I was more healthy or I hadn't made a big mistake or my family was the way I want it to be. But if you are in Christ and in the covenant of grace, all of your best days are ahead of you. You will receive all of the blessings that God held out to Adam because you are in Christ, who is the final Adam, and has won all of that glory for you. And so, you should let the covenant of grace shape your Christian life. That's the last way to apply this. And of course, you know this is coming, Herman Bobbing quote. Three of them in this short class, but they're very good. So let me read this. Before the fall, the rule was through works to eternal life. Now, sorry, that's a uh, typo. Now, after the fall, in the covenant of grace, the eternal life comes first. And out of that, the good works follow as fruits of faith. Before, men had to mount up to God. Now, after the fall, God comes down to man and seeks a dwelling place in his heart. Then the working days preceded the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath begins the week and hallows all its days. So think about the Lord's Day and that last sentence. In the previous administration of the Covenant of Grace, there was a sense where we were waiting uh, and uh, you worked toward the day of rest, right? You had to do a pretty good job during that week and then you get the day of rest. But in Christ, when the Sabbath day changes from the seventh day to the first day of the week, you start with the day of rest. You receive it as a gracious gift. It's been earned for you by Christ. And so I think if you take anything away from this, just think about how the Sabbath, the the Lord's day, is a gift for you of the covenant of grace. And do we use it the way that we should? Do we actually rest or do we... Uh, fill it with other things. Um, that's a great way, a concrete way to apply these things. But let me pause and ask if there are any questions. We're totally out of time, but do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, Bob? Yeah, yeah. The, the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham is promised a seed through Isaac. what you've been talking about is a place 
in Christ forever, whatever that may be, new heavens and new earth. It's not just a physical place, but it's a relationship. The land is your relationship to Christ forever. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate land. It's not Israel the real estate that we're having all these battles about. Um, so that that kind of symbolic typology is is something that should should be explained to people because without that you're always stumbling around in the Bible if you don't understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, a simple thing would be the rock. Uh, Moses hits the rock, and the rock is Christ. Moses hits the rock twice against God's wishes, and he gets in trouble. Mm -hmm. Evidently, that's like trying to be saved twice. And once you're saved, you're already saved. Something like that. I don't know. It's all symbolic typology. The rock is symbolically it's not really Christ. The land is temporarily, but temporarily given to Israel in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, the land is something far greater than that. So that symbolic understanding is is sophisticated, uh, and, but it's nevertheless it needs to be explored. Yeah. And we'll, so when we get to the covenant with Abraham, we'll talk more about that. Now, but to, yeah, go ahead. When you talk about the, the Sabbath day, when the writer of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath day, uh, you can do whatever kinds of do's uh, and don'ts or whatever you want to do about the Sabbath day. But what he means is that you've hit the rock once. You're, you're resting from your works to be justified by God. What you do now is between you and God, but as far as being justified, you're resting from that word. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what he means. Back up to Abraham. Uh, I think you're right. Abraham was promised this land, this specific geographical area, but I can speak authoritatively, I think. Abraham is not disappointed about the fulfillment of that promise being something other than that specific geographical Absolutely. land. It's something yeah. necessary for proof. You right. Have a, you have to have a place. Yeah. And it has to be yours. So somebody's going to take it away from you. Ray, what did you... Yeah, I, um, just in the, you know, the, the new covenant being a greater covenant. And, I, you know, I, I think that we as believers fail to, to realize that. I think uh, one of the things that I remember is uh, an old PC pastor that I had. He, I forget his name. Um, but I remember one time that he said, you know, when you look at Christ, when he didn't pass over with his disciples, not something very different, and that was he was reclining. <laughs> because it's done. And as you partake of the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, that's a position that you can take as well. It's done. Mm -hmm. It's over. We can look back. Because the Pascal Lamb, they were standing up. And they were mm -hmm. in a position of, this is not done yet. Right. We're still traveling. Yeah, there's big, great relief in yes. Jesus saying, it is finished. And it is totally yes. fulfilled. Um, and so that's why <clears throat> when you have, there are Christians and I want to be careful because of where we are in this building right now, but there are Christians who um, 
are often drawn to say, well, let's go back to some of those Old Testament festivals and um, the, the various symbolic things that were used. And there, some of that's totally fine. There's no problem if you want to do a Seder, Passover Seder or something like that, uh, to see how it connects to the gospel. That's a-okay. But there, some people take it very seriously and want to go say, well, Jesus would have us go back to these things. And I think actually Jesus would have us say that was good for that time, but now the fullness has come and we can move forward. And um, I think that's what Hebrews would say. That's what our confession of faith would say. And so I, there are temptations sometimes to, to say, oh, I wish we had what old covenant believers had and those outward things, but we don't, we don't need them because the fullness of them. Yes. Yeah, Martine? Yeah, I'm always reminded of um, Arson Sproul, you know, when he would talk about um, the covenant of grace. I mean, one, one time he said, he used an analogy of um, because of uh, the covenant of grace or the splendor of the covenant of grace, how when we draw near with full assurance, it's as we're walking into the Holy of Holies. And so um, even when we come to the church, it's, we ought to have that, that mindset because of this promise fulfilled, we have uh, access to us almost like, like if we are in the Holy of Holies, we're in the presence of God. So I'm always reminded yeah, definitely. That's uh, we have access through a new and living way through Jesus Christ, who has gone before us as our great high priest, and so we're welcomed in to the holy of holies. All right. Well, yeah. One more. That's okay. No. Yeah, they were at a stage where they had all that they needed for that time, but <clears throat> they needed more, and there, there was more that was coming. And so we can give thanks that we have the full, whole counsel of God that's been revealed, and we can see the whole thing, and that's an amazing benefit for us. All right, let me pray, and then we will be done for right now. Father, thank you for the covenant of grace. Thank you for... Jesus, who is our mediator of that covenant. He is the substance of that covenant, and we have all that we need in him. So would you give us a better understanding of the grace that is ours in him? And may we go out from here right now as people of the covenant of grace, and may that overflow from us into others who we meet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.